I own you. <laughs> According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2. Also check your noise-making devices and uh, put them in a vibration mode or a silent mode. <clears throat> Anything of that nature. All righty, Philippians chapter 2, and we are ready for kenosis. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's the prime imperative of this text, and it's the number one issue of the chapter, some would say even the entire book, that the attitude of Christ is what we're expected to have uh, consistently, all day, every day. This should be the rule rather than the exception, that uh, this will be our attitude, this will be our thinking. So think this thing in yourselves, which was also in, or which, it's not really, there's no was there, it's just which also in Christ Jesus. And you can think of it as a was, uh, or you can think of it as an is, because I don't believe he ever stopped being humble. I believe he's still humble, seated at the right hand of the Father. He still is looking out for the interest of others. He still is interceding on our behalf. Uh, he is still uh, our advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So uh, think, think this thing in yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're dealing with, all right? Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you tonight thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for the end of cedar season, Father. Thank you that January is almost done, we're going to move into February, and even now the numbers are already dropping, so we're thankful for that. Provide uh, uh, clarity, uh, a clear speaking voice, and bless our time tonight. Thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we can start with some questions, though, before we get to kenosis in Philippians chapter 2. Is the microphone ready to go? There it is. All righty. And Lewis, if you don't mind running it, appreciate that. I don't believe we have any old business, so we'll start with Bill Kelly over there in the back corner and uh, give him our leadoff question, and then uh, we'll take it from there. Had some good questions this morning, too, and good discussion. All right, yes, sir. Uh, speaking of kenosis... Sunday you had said something um, in reference to um, systematic theology about um, Christ learning through the Holy Spirit who he was throughout his childhood, something to that effect. Uh -huh. um, so my question is simply basically this. Knowing that Christ did not have a old sin nature mm -hmm. because it passes from male to to the offspring, did he have the capability to commit sin? There's, uh, there's two aspects of Jesus, of course. He is undiminished deity. He's also true humanity. And so in, in Latin terms, they expressed it as uh, posse non pecari and non posse pecari, different expressions there. As God, God cannot sin. The deity of Jesus Christ was not capable of sinning. But in his humanity, what was he vulnerable to? What might he have done volitionally in opposition to the will of the Father? Because when he was in prayer in Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but thine be done. And that, that prayer admits the reality that his humanity had a will that was different than the will of the Father. And that he was faced with a battle to either pursue his will or to submit to the Father's will. And even just admitting that it existed, I think, is, is huge. That's a, that's a monster admission. Not my will, but thine be done. Admits that he has a human will that if he exercised it would be at, at odds with the Father's will. And so um, the, then, of course, then you end up with all kinds of hypotheticals. Well, what if? You know, what if Jesus had sinned? And what would that have done to hypostatic union? Could his humanity have sinned? And what would that have done to hypostatic union? What would, you know, would that have destroyed his humanity? And things of that nature. Thankfully, we don't have to answer that what if because the what if never happened. But nevertheless, uh, he did pray, uh, he did say, pray that you not enter into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he sweat great drops of blood. And I think too, the legitimate thing is 
For the people who absolutely insist, they'll look me in the eye and they'll absolutely insist that he never could have sinned, uh, they will also say on the basis of that, he was never truly tempted. And I I take issue with that because the scripture says he was tempted. He was tempted in all things even as we are, yet without sin. And so if you're going to tell me that the temptation had no force, that it wasn't a real temptation, that uh, he never could have sinned even if he thought about it or wanted to, we know he thought about it. He said he thought about it. And then he immediately rejected that and gave it to the Father and said, not my will but thine be done. So um, I, I hold to the position that his humanity was capable, his humanity was fully volitional and had the capacity to express negative volition, but he chose not to the entire time of his earthly life. That's my answer, and I know there are, there are doctrinal people that call me a heretic for that, but that's, that's my conviction as I understand it. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, I was just curious, uh, when, uh, you know, when Paul says the jailer, you and your household will be saved, and then they are, what, what kind of prophecy is that? I mean, is, is that a prophecy? Is that, it's not a prophecy, it's a, it's a gospel invitation. But, I mean, he didn't know ahead of time that it would happen, right? I mean... <clears throat> I don't take it that way. No, I mean, Acts 16.31 you're talking about when the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And uh, Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's a consequence. Believe is an order. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know, um, you and your household. Now, they also have to believe. The jailer can't get saved and automatically his wife becomes a believer, his kids become believers, his slaves become believers. No, each individual within his household has to be saved. But starting with that jailer, uh, he has the blessing then to preach the gospel to his whole household. And the uh, the opportunity is there for whosoever will. I preach whosoever will because the Bible says whosoever will. And that's uh, that's the answer. No, I don't think that as a that's not a prophecy. That's an answer to the question, sirs. What must I do to be saved? So appreciate that. All right. And then, okay, we got Chuck. Then Robert. Thank you. So I have a question about the lesson this morning. Mm-hmm. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain. That was the Proverbs fourteen. Yes. So that that doesn't have to mean that you're your laughter is fake it could just mean that you have grief in your heart but you're also able to laugh you know that the grief is something that God's taking care of or is that always is he always talking there about fake laughter and that this person is a hypocrite <laughs> it doesn't have to be no i think it often is yeah even a laughter the heart may be in pain yeah it doesn't have to be a phony laughter um it could be a legitimate laughter but it does show that oftentimes the emotions are misleading. That oftentimes the emotions can go one direction or the other direction, sometimes both directions at once. And that's why we don't want to use uh, emotions as a uh, benchmark or a guide uh, because the emotions can be skewed and the emotions can be manipulated. And I think that agrees well with verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end uh, is the way of death. And so we want to be very clear on what we're doing and why we're doing it. We want to make sure in our Christian walk that we're humble in applying the Scriptures and not, uh, not going to some route that the world goes. So something else you mentioned this morning was, well, let me, let me ask my question. Okay. Is there a New Testament example or church age example where a senior spiritual leader would be able to confess the sins of the people under his supervision and what would that accomplish i think so i think we have jesus on the cross saying uh, forgive them they know not what they do you have uh, stephen in acts chapter 7 quoting jesus saying forgive them they don't know what they do i think you have paul confessing the sins of those who had mistreated him uh, he said all have deserted me and may it not be held against them he said in my first defense no one stood with me may it not be held against them so I think we do have examples there in the New Testament of what we were talking about this morning with intercessory confession. But Jesus had already died for those sins. So was he just saying, praying that they wouldn't have discipline for committium? 
Yeah, well, any confession is, is a sin that Christ died for. When we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So any sin we confess is a sin Christ died for. The issue in confession is, does this then restore us to fellowship? Are we back to walking in the light? Are we filled with the Holy Spirit? Are we restored back to a, a fellowship basis with the Father and with the Son? And what we were discussing this morning is what value is there if parents are confessing on behalf of their children, if husbands are confessing on behalf of their wives, if pastors are confessing on behalf of their churches. And like I say, we have examples in the Old Testament, and, and with your question, we have uh, answers, examples in the New Testament as well, I think. And so that negates, if God answers that prayer, yes, mm-hmm. that means that person who did that horrible thing it's not going to get disciplined by God because. Oh no, no, you prayed. can still receive discipline. Absolutely, confessing my sins puts me back in fellowship. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but I may still face lifelong consequences for my carnality. So, what did they actually accomplish by praying that prayer? The person gets restored to fellowship. The person gets gets filled with the Holy Spirit. They're back. So they're back in the Holy. In, they're back in filled by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when I confess. That's what happens when you confess. But when they confess for someone else, that person gets filled with the Spirit again. Uh, my suspicion is yes. Yeah. Okay. With intercessory confession as a, as a concept. Now, I haven't taught it systematically from any book study yet, but we have seen it in the Old Testament repeatedly, and I think we've seen a handful of examples in the New Testament as well. Okay, yeah. I have one more question, and then I'll rel- relinquish the microphone. All right. In Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 11 and 12, uh-huh. does that passage... Is it saying that either you have the gift of prophet or apostle or evangelist or pastor teacher and everybody else is in the work of service? Their spiritual gift is service? Um, no. Because that's the only one listed really in 12 because the others are for the equipping of the saints, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. First uh, Peter 4 divides gifts between speaking and serving gifts. Um, there are speaking gifts beyond apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. For example, there's teacher, there's exhorter, there's other communication gifts. But these are the equipping gifts. And so the equipping gifts, and we don't, of course, we don't have apostles and prophets anymore. They were first century before the New Testament. But now that uh, the New Testament is complete, we still do have evangelists and pastor teachers. And those are the equipping gifts. Think of those as the drill sergeants uh, for the church age boot camp or or something of that nature, the quartermaster, God bless the quartermaster, the equipping of the saints for the work of service. That's what it's about. And so today we have evangelists and pastor teachers are the equipping gifts for the church age. All right, Robert had a question too, front row here. And then we'll get to Carol after Robert. Can you wait? Okay. Well, I just, um, before I jump to my question, I would take the work of service to be the the work that Ephesians two ten speaks of that mm-hmm. we're, you're you're equipping us all of us for the work that God has laid out for us. Yes, the works that we were created unto good works, which God right. prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, yeah. so now my question goes back to the, to Bill's first question. Okay, which is about the uh, ability of Christ to sin. Uh-huh. Well, this is that same argument is used by Calvinists, for instance, that believers or the elect cannot refuse to believe right so it's making us all to be robots i believe so i think rigid determination is a complete denial of of libertarian free will and the bible defends libertarian free will again and again and again we make choices we face consequences If, if that's not true then the law of sowing and reaping is a mockery that we just, you know, you do what God makes you do and you reap what God makes you reap and he's just a puppet master who forces everything. And I, I think that's, that's anathema to scripture. Yeah. All right, and then our concluding question for the night. You guys came loaded tonight, that's a good deal. Appreciate that. Well, this is based on previous discussion. Mm-hmm. Confession, restoration only happens at confession if there's repentance. Well, because confession is not possible without agreement with God. Correct. So for a first-person confession, if I'm confessing my sins, I cannot homologeo because I cannot agree with God. I cannot say 
what God says about this sin unless I have had a change of thinking where my thinking is aligned with his thinking, then my confession is aligned with his confession. Does that make sense? So that's, that's true in personal confession, yes. So you're saying now in intercessory confession, when my child has not yet repented, do, is there a value in my confession on his behalf? And I've seen a handful of scriptures where it was happening again and again and again. We had one this morning where Moses was con- confessing on behalf of an entire Jewish nation. And God honored that. God said, for your sake, I will pardon them. And he pardoned an entire nation because of Moses' confession. And so that was the example we looked at. Now, that's not church age, and that's why Chuck was asking about, well, what about in the church age? Is it, is it possible in the church age? Yeah. And, so, and, those um, are, and so Stephen and, and Paul, Paul's mm-hmm. an apostle, the last mm-hmm. apostle, so I don't know what Stephen was, but... Okay. Stephen was a deacon, and Stephen was one of the first leaders in Jerusalem, okay. the first so martyr in Acts chapter 7. He's kind of on our level, as far as, not our level, but he's not an apostle. He's Correct, he's not an apostle. Yeah. Okay, thank you. He was a deacon, a deacon who died. There you go. You had a question? Yeah, just for clarification, if Mildred Jones commits a sin, I can confess on her behalf and she is restored to count, to fellowship, much like the priest in the Roman Catholic Church. No, I wouldn't go there. Well, there's no <laughs> difference because right because they the only way they would know is if someone had told them, uh-huh. and they on their behalf are confessing their sins to God the Father on their behalf. I don't understand the difference. A believer is confessing oh, for another believer. Yeah, no, no, that's a big difference. See. The thing is, in the, in the Roman Catholic dogma, the priest has, uh, by virtue of his apostolic succession and by virtue of his ordination and the superpowers they get when they become a Catholic priest, they have the, the ability to grant uh, absolution. And they have the ability to assign penance. They have the ability to, to function on a divine level towards the you know the lowly uh, you know uh, okay. minions. Okay. Um, I don't believe when when and and this is this is not a comprehensive doctrine that I've I've taught you know. No. And I'm not teaching it tonight. I'm just saying, I have seen a number of examples where believers have confessed the sins of other believers, and God honored that confession. And so, if that is a valid application, then the plural of if we confess our sins, that language, that plural language does allow for we to confess our sins. And so that might be Mildred confessing Josephine's, I forgot the name, whatever you said. The, 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 on that basis, there is a, a potential application for intercessory confession, not just limited to personal confession. And I'm going to keep studying that. I'm going to keep looking for passages. But this morning, we found a very good one with Moses confessing. Moses. We also have Daniel confessing the sins of his entire nation as well. So that's uh, it's a concept I'm still working on. And you can stone me later when I, when I finish, when I make up my mind as to uh, whether it's valid or not valid for the church age. All right. Well, let's look at Philippians 2 and let's have the, the thinking that Christ had. Thank you for running the microphone. Remember, verse 5 is, we have a very long string of of things that are all leading up to it. And so, um, starting with the four ifs in verse 1, and then the make my joy complete in verse 2, it just, it it builds from there. So the make my joy complete is defined in verse 2 by thinking the same thing, maintaining the same love, uh, united in spirit, intent on one thinking. Okay, And thinking, thinking shows up twice in verse 2. Being of the same mind is a freneto thinking verb, and intent on one purpose is the very same identical freneto thinking verb. And so that verb shows up twice. It's, it's verb 1 in verse 4 of the uh, make my joy complete foursome. Okay? 
to make my joy complete foursome is think the same thing, uh, hold the same love, um, have the same uh, be one sold, and uh, think one thing. And, and so there's those four things. And thinking is, is two of those four verbs. Then we get into verse 3. Now starting in verse 3 we have our introduction to verse 5. Because verse 3 and verse 4 are all just very wordy, very uh, verbose, a lot of verbiage in verses 3 and 4 that are leading up to the command of verse 5. And it's, it's unfortunate that I think that they're rendered as finite verbs like do nothing. Uh, there's no do. Okay, There's no do. I feel like Yoda, right? No do. No, he said there is do. He said, never mind, do or do not. There is no try. That was a Yoda quote. This is not a do though, okay? This is a think because it's continuing. If you're going to supply a verb, the natural verb to supply is the one that was just used twice in the immediate verse. Thinking, okay? So anyway, make my joy complete by thinking the same thing, (coughs) having the same love, being one-souled, intent on one purpose, thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Okay, Now now literally there is no verb there, it's just an adverb. Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. And again, regarding is is, uh, not a finite verb. It's a participle. It's showing you these extended circumstances. And that's what we have here. So thinking nothing from selfishness, thinking nothing from empty conceit, with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not looking out for your own interests, but looking out for the interests of others. We still haven't gotten to a main verb yet. These are just participles that are introducing the idea. Okay? And so we might do the same thing too. We might say, and I might introduce it, I might say um, reading your Bibles every day, uh, staying in fellowship as much as possible, um, not harboring mental attitude sin against members of your church family, coming to church consistently, study the book of Philippians. Right? And so that was a whole string of ings, a whole string of participles, a whole string of of attendant circumstances, of activities that you should be engaged in that introduce, that pave the way, that allow you then to obey the final imperative when it is ultimately uttered. Does that make sense? All right. so um the point is, if you, if you are in any way disobedient anywhere in the process of verse 3 and verse 4, it's, it's, it's certain you cannot or you will not obey the imperative in verse 5. You will never have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus if everything you're thinking comes from selfishness or empty conceit. Or if uh, you don't have the humility of mind. Or if you don't regard one another as more important than yourself. Or if you're looking out for your own personal interests and you're not looking out for the interests of others. Any of those things in verses 3 and 4, if, you're, if you break any of those, you will not obey the command from verse 5. It's just not going to happen. How are you going to have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus? Okay? And so that's what we deal with there. Now, so uh, as we were dealing with it in point 3, let's see, what, did we get all this? Yeah, we got all this. So, uh, Point one was the uh, the backwards outline that uh, have this attitude as the climax imperative that follows two present participles, the regarding and the looking out for. So we're kind of walking our, our way up to this backwards. Um, also, even the regarding is a climax participle that follows two negative thought processes, thinking nothing from selfishness, thinking nothing from empty conceit. And we walked our way through that. But with humility of mind, Regarding one another as superior. So we dealt with that. What does it mean to regard? What does it mean to value? What does it mean to esteem? And uh, we're commanded to have them in high esteem. And then the looking out for. Again, it's a participle. 
thinking not for your own personal interests. Looking out not for your own personal interests. You are not looking out for number one. That's not what is being called for in this chapter. So thinking not for your own personal interests, but thinking of the interests of others. And the verb is skapeo. You know, I like to say scoping out. You know, whatever it is you're scoping out, you're keeping your eye on it. You've got your uh, Captain Hook looking glass and your, you know, or whatever, Pirates of the Caribbean, your Captain Jack Sparrow. You pull it out and you, you're watching, whatever. You're not taking your eyes off it. You're looking out for the interests of others. And that's scapeo. We spent time on Sunday looking at these passages and, and frequently scapeo is used of like a guard dog. It's used of a shepherd. It's used of a spiritual leader that's keeping an eye on those who cause disturbances. Alright, like in Romans 16. And we're keeping an eye out for these things. Not your own interests, but the interests of others. And fundamentally that's what it's about. And this is not so much a vocabulary study because, I mean, heoton is a, is a you know, a reflexive pronoun there, and heteron. Uh, you know, it's, it's, the vocabulary is not the point when, when it talks about yourself or others. It's the concept. It's the concept that if you're going to be Christ-like, you're not focused on you. If you're going to be Christ-like, you're focused on everybody but you. You're focused on others because Christ was focused on others. If he was focused on himself, he never would have left the ivory palaces. He never would have uh, emptied himself. He wouldn't have come to this earth. He wouldn't have submitted to nine months in utero. He wouldn't have been born of a, in a manger. And all of that, and all the humility of growing up, and all of that, and everything he subjected himself to in his incarnation. He didn't do any of that thinking about himself. Because as far as he needed, he didn't need any of that. He didn't need a kinsman redeemer to go to the cross to save him. We needed that. And so he identified with us in all that he did. And so those passages there, I think, center on that completely. Now, which all of that then, not your own interests, but the interests of others. That's what we're scoping out. We're keeping our eye on the interest of others. We're not going to lose sight of the interest of others. We're never going to take our eye off the interests of others. Because the moment we do that, we've just violated the, the uh, uh, prerequisites for have this attitude in yourself. Which we finally get to now in our point four. Have this attitude. Literally is think this thing. Think this thing. It's the same verb we've been looking at. It's been used uh, twice in verse two. It's our thinking verb here that's used ten times in Philippians, all right, phroneo. It's it's not only is it a word for thinking, but it's a comprehensive thinking whereby you have developed a mindset. You have so thought it through that now this is your mind, right? So make up your mind. Uh, Have this mind, have this thinking. And if you only have half a mind, then you're halfway there, okay? (laughs) And we, we say that, you know, boy, I've got half a mind to do whatever, all right? Well, then just, you know, get the other half of your mind and put it together with that half of mind you already have and, you know, think better of that because that's probably not a smart thing. But, so think. Have this attitude. Have this thinking. And, you know, once you settle your thinking, we can can use the same expression in, in modern English all the time. You say, well, you know, I've thought about it. I've thought a lot about it. I've this is, this is now my mind. Let me tell you, this is my thinking on this subject. Okay? Let me explain to you my thinking on why Austin Bible Church should have student housing. Let me explain to you my thinking about why um, you know, there's a missionary endeavor we want to get on board with, or, or whatever the case may be. That, that you've put the thought into it, you've come to a conclusion, your, your mind, you now have a mindset might be another way to say it. So set your mind on these things. Have this mind, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So that's what, we, that's what we're dealing here with point A. I'm sorry, with main point four here. There's an A and a B that follow. Have this attitude, that is think this thing in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And uh, fundamentally what's then going to be described is a history of what Jesus did in the kenosis, how he and, and we, can, we can go through the hymn. It's, it's really, it's an early Christian hymn that Paul's using. 
who, although he existed in the form of God, do not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's his thinking. And there's going to be consequences for that thinking that are spelled out in verses 9 through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, so that's what we're getting at. And that's the thinking of Christ. That was the thinking He had in Him. And that's the thinking we're to have in us. And really when we talk about have this thinking, spend some time looking at verses 3 and 4 and then looking at verses 6 through 9 and you see it's the same thing. All of that lead in. All of that lead in about no selfishness, no empty conceit, humility of mind. Well, that's the thinking of Christ right there. And it then gets, so it's, it's prescribed in verses 3 and 4, it's commanded in verse 5, and then it's illustrated in, in, with the example of Jesus in verses 6 through 9. And it's the same thing all the way around. It's personal humility and thinking of others. Serving on behalf of others. That's the whole picture. All right? Some would say it's a whole book of Philippians. So there you have it. All right. So think this thing in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the example for us to follow. Jesus is the example. The Quran says that Muhammad is the example. And all the, and the, and all the Hadith say that Muhammad is the ultimate example. And so follow Muhammad and you will please Allah, according to the Quran and according to the Hadith. And which is why so many Muhammad followers are uh, murderers and rapists and terrorists and robbers and thieves because Muhammad was a murderer and a rapist and a plunderer and a thief. And, a, and, and by that's what the Quran said he was. And the Quran said, imitate him. Well, our Bible has a different Savior and one that's humble, one that is uh, meek and gentle, one that says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And uh, we're to be an imitator of him, see. And so uh, we see it. Jesus is the example for us to follow. John 13, 15, where I think uh, some people miss the point. This is the foot washing chapter. And uh, so Jesus, because of the setting and because of what was happening and because this is what they did back then and, and, and if we lived in the ancient world we would do the same thing, right? When, uh, when you're coming in and you know, the kids have been playing in the backyard and mom says, wash your hands for dinner, you got to wash your hands for dinner. Well, in the ancient world you were washing your hands and you were washing your feet, all right? Walking around the dirty world with your sandals and so they had foot washing. And this was a blessing upon entering a home. And uh, typically you would have a servant that would do that, a slave. Or uh, without a slave, then the, the host might do it. Um, if, it was, if it was a very important person, he would never do it. He would have a slave do it. Say, But here's Jesus doing it. Because he's illustrating. He's demonstrating that he has come not to be served, but to serve. And that he's found in the likeness of a bondservant. All the things we're going to see in the Kenosis chapter. So um, in, in 13.4 he gets up from supper and he lays aside his garments. He takes a towel, he girds himself and he poured water into the basin. He begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now some of these men, they've been with him for three and a half years. And this is obviously the first time he's ever done this. The only time he's ever done this. Uh, this is the night in which he's betrayed. It's his last opportunity to do this. Okay? And he's making a big impression in the last night that he has to teach him doctrine before he goes to the cross. And Peter, of course, is horrified. <laughs> and for whatever reason, um, you know, 
I don't think he had particular. Well, who knows what his feet were like, but it doesn't matter. He just he was horrified at the at the idea, and I think I probably would be too. So he comes to Simon Peter. Now, who knows? We don't know the order. He began to wash the disciples' feet, plural, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. How many did he get to? I mean, there were twelve or more. I think Matthias was there that night. Judas was still there. And so he finally he comes to Simon Peter, either, you know, not first, but maybe second, third, fourth, we don't know. And he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's not going to let it happen. And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. There is a spiritual reality you're not equipped to handle now. But when you get the Holy Spirit in the church age, you're going to grasp the, the theological significance of this. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Right? This is like an over my dead body moment. And this is classic Peter. Peter's constantly, you know, speaking first and thinking later or whatever. He's just, he's, he's, he's a man of action. <laughs> never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Ooh. See, Peter doesn't know what he's saying. Because he doesn't understand what the Lord's doing. So when in doubt, if you're clueless and Jesus tells you you're clueless, just go ahead and go with it, okay? Just admit, hey Lord, I'm clueless, so go ahead, do what you're going to do. I'll figure it out someday. Well now, after the rebuke of verse 8, Peter knows he's in trouble. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Peter then said, okay, my mistake. Um, And then he goes overboard the other direction. Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my my hands and my head. So, you know, if you make one mistake, well then just go overboard the other direction, you can make up for it. That's classic human viewpoint, right? And Jesus, you know, doesn't really say this, but you can imagine he breathed a deep sigh of Peter, Peter. All right. He said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Okay? Because there's doctrine here. The full body bath is what happens when we get saved. The foot washing is what happens when we confess. When we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He says, Peter, you're already a believer. Why would I give you a full bath? You're already saved. The only one that's not saved in this upper room is Judas, and he's not about to get saved, so don't worry about it. He knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason He said, not all of you are, are clean. So then verse 12, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined back at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, for you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Okay. Now does that mean he's instituting a ritual? He's instituting an ordinance? Do we add foot washing to baptism and communion? Do we have three ordinances in the church age? No. We have here an example. He said, in my greatness as your teacher, I'm showing you that the issue is humility and service one to another. And maybe that'll be foot washing on an appropriate occasion. Maybe it'll be something else on an appropriate occasion. Maybe it'll be whatever on an appropriate occasion. But whatever the need may be, there is nothing too low that is beneath you. Okay? If there's something beneath you, you're not humble enough. That's what he's saying. So I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. And that's the example. And he follows it up. Amen, amen. Truly, truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And so this is the pattern. This is about following the example that Christ set. Jesus said, I gave you an example that you should follow. Now thankfully... Uh, we have kind of the rest of the story for decades later in Peter's life. He did catch on. Okay? Now, now Peter had his bonehead moment here. He has his bonehead moment later when Jesus said, you will all betray me. And Peter said, not me, Lord. And, and then Jesus tells him about the rooster and says, no, you're going to deny me three times. Um, anyway, thankfully then, by the end of the Gospel of John, 
as Peter does deny him three times in chapter 18, and how sad is that? But then Jesus is so merciful. I'm on my way to First Peter, but before I get there, what happens in John 21? What happens at the end of the Gospel of John? Jesus very graciously comes to Peter and says, do you love me? Peter says, yes. Do you love me? Peter says, yes. Then the third time, do you love me? And, and Peter was grieved and understand, why are you doing this three times? But the three times was a marvelous way for Jesus to say, hey, I'm not holding it against you. You denied me three times? Well, guess what? Now you said you love me three times, so we're, we're good. All right? Just, you know, go on and have a nice life. Um, anyway, it's, it's a fun chapter. and it's a, it's a neat thing there. And Peter gets it. So when we get to 1 Peter chapter 2, and Peter is talking about the example of Christ, and you go, ah, guess what? So in 1 Peter 2, verse 17 says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. you got a boss that's just a total jerk? All right. Blessing by association. How about that? Submit as unto the Lord. Bless them anyway. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, hey, great. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it, but Jesus didn't deserve the cross either, so why are you complaining? What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And that's an important verse too. That, anyway, that says, you know, divine discipline is one thing, but undeserved suffering is, is, is greater. Think of how marvelous that is. You get to be an imitator of Christ at that point. For you have been called for this purpose. Isn't that good news? Called for this purpose? Don't you want to be called for this purpose? If you're called for this purpose, then all, all things are going to work together for good, aren't they? Isn't that the promise? All things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. See, Peter gets this. He gets his whole doctrine. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Wow. So decades later, this is, we're talking 60, 62, 63. Peter was probably executed in 66 or 67. So Whenever, in the, in the last years of his life, as he's writing First and Second Peter, probably in the early 60s, he's communicating this, that what Jesus had taught him way back uh, on Thursday, April 2nd, 33 AD. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Absolutely pure sinless, the lamb without spot or blemish. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. He was like the (laughs) anti-Peter. Okay? Because Peter doesn't act this way, but Jesus did. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Moment by moment, day by day, Father, I'm in your hands. Father, this is yours. Father, Hold us not against them. They know not what they do. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we don't have to go to hell when we die. Is that what it's about? Get to go to heaven when we die? It actually has nothing to do with what happens after we die. It has to do with how we live here and now. Bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Right here, right now, on this earth, we walk in the newness of life. Die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. See, salvation is a return. It's a reconciliation. Uh, Through Christ we come to the Father, but uh, in the Father He brings us to Christ and we return This is our joy. Adam and Eve used to walk with the Lord in the garden in the cool of the day. And as fallen creatures, we've lost that. But when we get saved, what do we return to? 
the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. And we get to walk with the Lord. The Lord is our shepherd. And that's, uh, that's our blessing. So anyway, Jesus is the example for us to follow. And so it should be no-brainer in uh, think this thing in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, of course. Jesus is the example for us to follow. Jesus is also the standard to which we strive. Jesus is also the standard to which we strive. He's the example that we follow, but he's also the standard, the prototype, the pattern. We want to rise to his level. The benchmark, that's what he set. That's our mark. And this is the Ephesians 4 text. We had questions uh, before class, or the beginning of class on Ephesians 4, the equipping of the saints. The very next verse, verse 13, deals with this. I'm not done equipping uh, any member of this flock until every member of this flock reaches this level, and including myself. So he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Okay, There's only four some as is, there's only four gifts. The pastors and teachers is not a fourth and a fifth gift, it's a hyphenated fourth gift, pastor-teacher. Because there's only four some asses, pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So this is where you get your doctrine, you get your equipping, you get uh, trained, you get, you get all the tools you need to go forth and do the work. Also, to the building up of the body of Christ. You get equipped and you get edified, built up. Well, how much building up do we need? A lot. Because the standard is Jesus. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. If you think you're there yet, just raise your hand, let me know, and I will excuse you from the room. You'll be free to go tonight, take the rest of the night off. But none of us are there, let me tell you. Okay? Because this is the standard we're constantly reaching forward to. If we were there, we'd be gone. When we reach the pinnacle of where we're getting in this life, God takes us home. Say, we've finished our race, we've completed our course, we've run with endurance the race that's set before us. Jesus is going to take us home and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Say, like your uncles. Lillian lost two uncles last week, five days apart. Solid, mature, doctrinal believers. And now they're face to face with Jesus Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. They've reached the the, uh, pinnacle there of their growth. And so he is the standard. We strive towards it, we reach towards it, and in that process. So until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, how well do we know Christ? We come to know him when we get saved, right? And we say when we say, I come to Christ. Isn't that an expression we use? You know, if anyone knows Christ, all right. That's an idiom that expresses our phase one salvation. But think about it, that's only our introduction to this grace in which we stand. And then what happens as we continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I should know Him more today than I knew in 1973. If I don't, that's a problem. If, 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 if I only know Christ as well as I knew Him then, what's, what's that? It's like only knowing your spouse as well as you knew them on your wedding day. Okay, well, you probably should get to know them more than that after you're married. Okay, anyway, that's just an idea. Throwing that out there. If you don't think it's biblical, then reject it. But search the Scriptures, see if these things are so until we attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man. And, and it's not up to you to say, well, I'm mature. I'm mature. We can't define our own maturity and say, I'm mature. You don't give me credit for how mature I am. Right? You know, a child might say that to their parents, or a church member might say that to their pastor, or a pastor might say that to the Lord. Any human might say that to God and say, well, I'm more mature than you say I am. Well... It's not left to your estimation because it, we're told here what it is. The mature man is defined as the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. 
So there's your benchmark. That's your standard. And, uh, and there you have it. So now, this is true individually, and we teach this on an individual application for each individual believer, but it's also true corporately. It's true for the entire bride. God is preparing the bride as a, as a body, a corporate body, to be suited for His Son. And that can't happen until the rapture. That can't happen until the bride is complete. And then the entire bride will be equipped. I think this happens for a thousand generations. That is the fullness of time is the age of the fullness. And here we have the fullness of Christ. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And if you need any help with that, let me clue you in. Chapter 1 and verse 23 says that we are the fullness. Okay? Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Let's just be clear, okay? And and I'm kind of teasing this a little bit because this is, I'm, I'm prepping for Houston. This is a big part of my message in Houston. Um, it talks about the fact that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father far in the heavenly places. And so this is, this is uh, everything that's our blessing here in Christ. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age. Boy, the church age is amazing. But also in the one to come. The church age is simply a down payment. The church age is, a, is an earnest. It's an appetizer. The real fullness comes in the new heavens and on the new earth. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things. Gave Him His head over all things to the church. The corporate body. The church universal. I don't think that can be fulfilled till after the rapture. And so the church, corporate church universal is complete. Gave him his head. Let me clue you in. The headship here, this is the summing up of all things in Christ. Summing up is a headship verb. Here's a headship noun. Gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we are the fullness. He is the filler. Jesus is the filler. We are the fullness. You see that? Right there in verse 23? Which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills. Him who fills. And what does He fill? All in all. So, just kind of put these things in the back burner, chew on them, think about them, write these verses down and think, hmm, there's fullness here. Maybe that relates to the dispensation of the fullness of time. Okay, And then there's the Fullness of him who fills. Okay, Jesus is the filler. And then there's all in all. Well, guess what? When Jesus delivers the kingdom up to the Father, he does so. Why? So that God may be all in all. The only two places all in all shows up in the Bible are here and there. All right? Anyway, the fullness. And so we are being built up to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What's the fullness of Christ? Well, for the body of Christ... It's the completed bride in the new heavens and new earth. That's what He's preparing us for. So grow up. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there. Okay, Jesus is not Muhammad. He doesn't want a six-year-old bride. Okay, how sick is that? Oh, to be fair, He didn't consummate it until she was nine. How nice of Him. Okay, this little girl bride. Okay, no. Jesus wants a grown woman. He wants an adult bride. And so the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So grow up. We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. All right, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects. And, and what's the goal? Into Him who is the head, even Christ. Isn't that something? I don't know, do you ever think about this? I, I got to hold that little baby on Sunday morning and what a cute little kid. But any kid, think about a baby, think about a toddler, think of it. And what's the first thing that happens? You get this kid with his large head. It's too big for the rest of them. What happens there? But then eventually the body catches up. Isn't that a picture of us growing up into the head, which is Christ? I think it's a metaphor. I think it's a visual aid. So 
uh, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. And that's how it works. That's the church age. This is the stewardship in which you and I live. The Old Testament didn't have this. David didn't have this. Moses didn't have this. No Old Testament hero had this. They got saved, but nobody in the Old Testament was baptized into union with Christ. Nobody in the Old Testament was a body connected to the head that is Christ. Because Christ wasn't yet raised and glorified. Christ was not yet seated in victory at the right hand of God the Father. Okay? That requires the victory of the cross. So the Old Testament didn't have that, we do. And that is our thrill. That is, that is just an, an un, uh, unbelievable gift. So, now we're going to get on Sunday to the kenosis hymn. Kenosis is the Greek word that means empty. And the verb here is kanao. Jesus emptied himself. Now, we know different ways we can empty ourselves. Um, And some of them are not pleasant (laughs) that relate to a variety of functions. I don't want to get crude tonight, but we can empty ourselves in a lot of ways. Okay? Physically, emotionally, Spiritually, we can just expend ourselves, all right? The idea of emptying is what happens here. Kanao is the verb, kenosis is the noun. The idea of emptying and, and making void or making empty or making a, you know, an empty threat, an empty accomplishment, an empty pursuit. It's the idea in, in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything's empty. In human viewpoint, the whole Ecclesiastes approach is empty. And that's the Greek for that is from the Hebrew. But the the kanao here is what Jesus did. Now Jesus emptied himself. What do we mean by that? We have to come to a theological conclusion and we're going to teach this. But it's the hymn that's then introduced. Now did Paul write this hymn? Was he a musician? Did he write this hymn? Did he adapt somebody else's hymn? And I think there's a, there's a body of them. Paul does a lot of this. 1 Corinthians 15 I think was a, a hymn he adapted or he either wrote it himself or he adapted it. Uh, Philippians 2 is a hymn. He either wrote it himself or he adapted it. Uh, what what uh, Eliezer taught us Sunday before last, the mystery of godliness from 1 Timothy chapter 3 is an early Christian hymn. And either Paul wrote that or he adapted it. And in all these cases, the Apostle Paul is either the great hymn writer or the great hymn adapter <laughs> who, who took somebody else's music, took somebody else's lyrics, and then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he infused it into the Word of God for us. Put it in Scripture. And so what we have here, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's, that's, that begins the emptying. He didn't hold on to it with a clutching hand. The grasping is like rapture grasping. Okay? The verb harpazo, to, to grasp, to rapture, to snatch, that's connected here to this grasping thing. Deity is not a grasping thing. It's not a thing to be grasped. Satan tried to grasp it. Adam tried to grasp it. Eve tried to grasp it. They looked out there and they grabbed that fruit. Wanting to be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan vowed I will be like God. I will be like the Most High God. They thought, hey, I'm going to earn this. I'm going to deserve this. I'm going to get this. And Jesus said, not a grasping thing. And he emptied himself. That's our biggest clue theologically. He can't stop being God, but he can stop using his godly privileges. He can stop using his omni-attributes. He can stop exercising his divine prerogatives. There are things that only God can do, but Jesus chose not to do any of those things. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that because um, in part what I taught last Sunday morning, and some of that was discussed Sunday evening, and I didn't really dispute it yet with Lewis, uh, but we'll have time when we, uh, when we Skype in the morning. We can talk about, um, yes, Jesus is omniscient, but he never used that omniscience in his first advent. Jesus is, is omnipotent. He never used that omnipotence in his first advent. He laid aside all of his 
divine privileges. He did so so that he could identify in our humility. And that's what kenosis is about. That's kenosis. So we'll teach that uh, Sunday morning. Lord willing and rapture pending. All right. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the blessing we have to study to show ourselves improved. Thank you for these students. I thank you that they study, they dig into it, they find the answers. And uh, reward that, honor that, Father. That's noble-minded, that's Berean-like. Make us all Bereans. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.